Welcome to the City Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. As a community of faith, we are passionate about helping people find and follow Jesus. The message for this week is from our current verse-by-verse study from the book of James. In each message, we will see some practical truths for living God's way in situations and circumstances that are often out of our control. As always, we would love to have you join us for a Sunday service sometime here soon in Vancouver. You can find directions, more info, and more sermons on our website at citybaptist.ca. Well, let's take our Bibles and go to the book of James, and we're going to be in chapter 4 this morning, and uh, we're going to continue our study where we've been the last uh, few weeks. This is uh, message number 12, actually, in our study of the book of James, and uh, we'll be wrapping it up uh, before our anniversary service in September, on September the 8th. And so, uh, if you did miss last week, today you're going to come into it a little bit behind, just so you know. Um, So go and listen to the podcast if you listened to it, missed it last week. Today's a continuation. Uh, I got into the message last week, and I realized that... uh, uh, yeah, this is going to go way too long, so you're welcome. <laughs> Split it into two, two parts. <laughs> but uh, today we're going to pick up in James chapter number four. And uh, last week what we did, I'll give you a brief overview of where we were. We really um, looked at the tension that surrounds God's expectations versus humanity's reality. In essence, what scripture says and how we should act and how we should live. And then James described for us sort of the reality of what the Christian life is like. Now, verse one through five, let's read through it real quickly. It's what we covered last week. He said, from whence come wars and fightings among you? What a great question. Hey church, where's the war from? Where's all the fightings? Where's all the difficulty? He says, come they not hence, even of your lusts, that war in your members? He says, ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Then he says this, ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lust. The uh, effect of a selfish life even finds its way into your prayers, where we are praying in such a way as to try to manipulate God, if you can imagine that. I've definitely tried to do that before. I think if I pray in this certain way, sure, it's within the will of God, but I know that if this thing happens, then, oh, maybe this will happen, and it'll just sort of work out for me and my family, right? And I'm trying to manipulate God in essence, but he says you should never do that. That's praying amiss in a wrong way. Then he says uh, in verse 4, ye adulterers and adulteresses. Now, that's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? We looked at that last week. That's a very strong statement. He says, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And then he said this, Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? What James is trying to get across to us is that the greatest battle that we face as humans uh, is not necessarily outward persecution. It's not necessarily uh, our fear of being betrayed or someone mistreating us or even outward visible attacks from the devil But the greatest thing that we face as Christians is an inward attack that can be led by our own personal desires. We talked about that last week. The greatest uh, issue, the greatest thing that, that attacks us as believers is not necessarily things from the outside, but our inward desires. And it is those desires, as we read, that leads us to uh, be a friend of the world, to be a person who has improper motives when it comes to prayer. And as a result, he said here that Christians can actually walk in enmity with God. Now, enmity is a word that means active opposition. So it is possible for Christians to work in active opposition against God. Now, that's kind of a hard thing to understand, isn't it? I know when I read it, I'm like, nah, I don't know about that. I'm a Christian. I'm his child. How is it that I work in opposition to God's plan? But as a parent, I begin to understand this, and I'll explain it to you. Now, how many of you, well, you would never expect this of me, but as a teenager, I often got into trouble. 
Only my wife laughs. Okay, that's fine. That's totally fine. Uh, but I did. I, I get in trouble a lot and, uh, uh, for the stupidest things, and I won't give you all the great illustrations that I have. I'll save them for another day. But one of the things definitely in my life is that uh, I would do something stupid or I'd say something stupid. That happened a lot. And, uh, and my, my parents would catch me or whatever, or they'd, they'd you know, confront me about it, and they'd maybe punish me uh, or they'd correct me, whatever it may be. And, and do you remember what it was like to be a teenager? Um, and just feeling like, man, they got it all out for me. Remember that? You know, your parents, you, oh, your parents are just trying to get me. And, and, uh, and I would often be rebellious in that. And, and I would be rebellious towards them. And, and they would, you know, uh, give me correction. And I have a bitter attitude towards my parents. But, you know, at the time as a teenager, I didn't see myself as an opposition to my parents in my rebellion. I really didn't because I was inwardly focused, right? I was like, why, you know, it's so mean of them to, to correct me over that. And obviously there were some things I knew I'd done wrong. Um, but, uh, oh, by the way, I forgot I had a picture of me as a teenager. I forgot I meant to show you that. I'm sorry. Can you guess which one's me? <laughs> the glasses. Yeah, yeah. Look at look how sweet I was. My brother. Now, my older brother, he looks like he's a problem right there. And he was. He really was. He actually was a problem. <laughs> uh, okay, here's my point. That's what I'm trying to get to. So I wasn't, personally, I wasn't actively in opposition to my parents. But now that I'm a parent and my own children for whatever reason, have rebellious attitudes towards me, or they, uh, they're upset, their own attitude then becomes a barrier. It becomes an opposition to what I'm trying to accomplish as a parent. Why is that? Because as a parent, I'm trying to raise my child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, right? I'm trying to point them in the right direction. So in his, which I, you know, in my children's uh, rebellion, then they are putting a stop to my purpose as a parent to grow them up in the admonition of the Lord because the rebellion is putting, and so in essence, they're stopping forward motion. They are at enmity. They are opposing what's going on. And that's how it is with us. In our rebellion, in our sin, we don't see ourselves as, as an active opposition to God as we hide that secret sin in our heart. But the reality is, is that we are hindering God's movement and God's work in our lives and hindering him from uh, helping us to move forward. And so James here is very loud and he's very clear. Check your motives, check your heart. And the application that we had last week was that in the middle of strife, when we're in aspects of our life that are, that are difficult, when we are um, dealing with anger or with bitterness or uh, we have a mindset of shame or unworthiness, whatever the strife or whatever the battle may be in our lives, we need to ask the question, where is this coming from? That's what James said. Where are these wars and fightings coming from? And he made it so clear, it's coming from you. It's not coming from God. So often we struggle with emotions and we try to blame somebody else, right? Or we try to blame, uh, we even try to blame God, or we, we rarely blame ourselves. But he says, no, it's your own fleshly lust. It is your own, it's coming from within. It's your sin uh, nature that is beginning to rule over you. And then as a result, we enter into an adulterous relationship with the world. Meaning we're giving love to the world. We're giving love to ourselves that by all rights should be given to God. So that was James' indictment of the early church. And to be honest with you, it stands, I think today, it stands on its own, its own feet, doesn't it? It stands on its own feet because it really does illustrate and I think reflect what is happening today in the modern day church. Recently, I had an opportunity to sit down with a, a Christian leader here in the, in the city and uh, he runs an organization uh, that networks thousands of Christians here in Vancouver. You say there's thousands of Christians in Vancouver? Yes, there are actually. And uh, they're few and far between. I met one yesterday during our outreach. That was kind of fun. He said, after he found out we were church, he said, this, he said the code word. You know what the code word is for Christians here in Vancouver? Blessing. <laughs> yeah, blessing is one of the code words. No, he said, well, it's nice to meet you. 
brother, is what he said. Yeah, then I said, <laughs> and I had a chill, like, went down my spine. It was great, yeah. And we hugged, and no. <laughs> you know how it is, Christians, when we see another Christian or we think someone's a Christian, we're all like, okay. Anyway, uh, but I met with this guy, and uh, he's, he's well-known here in the city, and someone had set it up. They're like, you got to talk to this guy. I said, okay. Uh, and so we met, and uh, he runs this mission organization, and they, they really, they connect thousands and thousands of people and missionaries and all this. Well, as we got to talking, it wasn't five minutes before he just started telling me how terrible things were <laughs> in the world of missions. And he started just telling me all of these difficulties and the struggles, uh, how just like simple care, involvement, churches aren't involved. And, and basically, he talked about how their missions organization, where in the past, people would surrender to go to the mission field and people would get involved with ministry. Now, he said, we've had to turn it into essentially an elaborate fundraising campaign. It's become more of a corporation than a ministry just trying to coerce people uh, to, to go and serve somewhere in the, in the mission field. He said that, you know, in the past people would go and, and give their lives. He says, today, we just try to get people to go for a few weeks. That's all we try to do. And he talked about the thousands of missionaries that are coming off. And, and thankfully, I was able to share with him our church story and how uh, the Lord's used us to send missionaries and, and, and all of that. And he was pretty excited about that. But the, the, the thing that really stood out to me is that he kept saying the church is just not sending. Of course, he's speaking in a universal sense. But he's saying the church is just not sending. They're not serving. They're not giving uh, like they're used to. And so they'd come up with this whole new philosophy, this whole new thing of how missions was to be done. And so he tried to bring out a few bright spots to me. He's saying, oh, well, there's this good thing that's happening in this one place. And, and he's trying to illustrate all these good things. But the whole time I was thinking, and I eventually said this to him, uh, after, after we talked for quite a while, the thing I said to him was this. I said, you know what I've learned just from our conversation is that what you're telling me is not necessarily a organization issue what the issue is it's a local church issue it's a christian issue it's people and it's christians all around the world who have become more inwardly focused than we are outwardly focused and so as a result there's a great lack in serving around the world and there's a shortage of missions and funding i found it interesting that uh the average retention rate now for a missionary within 10 years is only 57 percent so almost one in every two missionaries that goes to the field uh, within 10 years, they're coming off of the field. We don't see that lifetime of service like we used to. Those people committed to stick it out no matter what. Why is that? Well, James gives us the source here. It is our own walk with God is our own inward focus. And so James uh, very clearly illustrates that for us. But like we talked about last week, he doesn't just leave us hanging. He gives us a, a solution. And that's what I love about the Bible. It's not like you're the worst ever. It's slam, you know. Uh, it gives us an illustration. It, it, it gives us a reason and, and things that we should pursue after. So what's the solution? We're going to get now into verse number uh, six. And he's going to show us the cure for worldliness, the cure for being inwardly focused, and the way back into friendship with God. And I believe when friendship with God happens, you have an impactful life of service for the Lord. So he's going to get into some practical thoughts. We've got three thoughts here from the passage. But before he does that, I want you to see in verse number six, uh, where, uh, where he uh, gives us uh, just a promise and reminds us of something just so great. Look what he says in verse six. He says, but who? who what does it say there? He, who's that? It's God. But he, God, giveth more grace. I love that. He just ripped our faces off, right? That's what he did. He's like, you're, the, you're terrible. Adult, I mean, come on. I never want to be accused of being an adulterer. But he just said it, blanket statement to the church. You adulterers and adulteresses, but he giveth more grace. But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. 
Church, it is only by God's grace and by his grace alone that we would ever have a, have a hope of overcoming the desires of our flesh. It's only through God's grace. It is only through his unmerited favor that's given to us that it would be possible for us to be forgiven and to be freed from our sin. It's grace alone that God would give to us his spirit uh, to warn us and to guide our lives towards him. And no matter what our condition and no matter what our situation, no matter where you are right now spiritually, God has more grace for you at this moment. He has more grace. The, the idea behind the term that James used here is the idea of grace upon grace, an outpouring of grace, a waterfall of grace, a never-ending source of grace, of favor towards you, his child. See, in our sin, we deserve the wrath of God, don't we? But in his grace, we stand complete in him. That's what we deserve, but we stand complete because of his grace. God gives us grace to overcome personal weaknesses. Aren't you thankful for that? Amen. Oh, come on. Help me out here today. You're like, wow, he is sweating a lot. I'm just going to stay quiet, you know. <laughs> I had a rough morning, so there's going to be some sweat today, just so you know. All right? And, and, but God gives us grace to overcome our personal weaknesses, doesn't he? Man, for some, you've been through times of your life where you've been such a victim of self-centeredness that pulls you into a life of just despair and nothingness, and you want deliverance, and you cry out to God for deliverance, and he gives you grace for deliverance, doesn't he? For some of you, you've lived a life, and maybe right now you have a life where you are so stubborn. You've never lost an argument. Heads bowed, eye closed. No, I'm just joking. We won't take that. We'll take a hand raise. How many of you are stubborn? How many of you have never lost an argument? Right, we have that attitude, don't we? And you found yourself because you're unwilling to listen. You're unwilling to uh, uh, be influenced by anybody else that you've broken relationships all around you because of that. And in that moment of desperation when you finally realize inwardly that, hey, something's got to change and you cry out to God, he'll give you the grace to change. He'll be there for you. He'll help you. For those of you who've lived your life full of hatred, you've allowed uh, bitterness to just consume you. God has grace for that. For some of you, you may be looking at insurmountable odds. Some of you maybe have a terminal disease. Many of you struggle with health issues. Guess what? There is more grace for what you're going through right now. And I also believe that there's grace to do the impossible. There may come a time in your life, and I believe that God does this still, that he may call one of you to do the impossible, to serve him with your life, to go to the mission field for more than just 10 years and break that, uh, break that, uh, that barrier. And he may call you to do that. And you may say, I'm in the middle of my life and I'm in my middle of my career. I don't think it's possible. God will give you the grace to do that. He will give you the grace because he has grace upon grace, more grace. No matter what it is, no matter if you're in the just throes of selfishness, he will give you the grace to pull you through it. And it is available to all of us. But I want you to notice as well in the verse there that there is something called humility. That opens the door to grace. Verse number 10, he also says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Grace is an elevator of life. I love the way that he describes it. He'll lift you up. God is the one who will lift your head when you're hung down or when your head's uh, hung low and you're disappointed and you're discouraged. It's God's grace that encourages us and lifts us up. And so that's what James is saying here. He says, listen, you're terrible. <laughs> you are selfish. You pray to try to manipulate God and, and you're giving love to the things of this world and you're loving the world. You're at enmity with God, but God will give you the grace to continue on. God will give you the grace even to follow through with these points that he gives us here now as we continue through the passage. James sets the table. He gives us the issues and now he's gonna give us a few practical steps. Aren't you thankful the Bible is practical? I love that. 
It's one of my favorite parts of the Bible. It would be lame if it was not practical, right? It just says, okay, here's what you need to do. So this is what James is going to encourage us with. So we're going to look at verse number seven. But point number one, I want you to say, uh, see here. He says, if you're going to get out of this selfishness, if you're going to get back to being friendship with the Lord and, and being useful for the Lord, he says you got to submit to God's authority in your life. Now, authority is a word that I used to illustrate it. You could use a whole bunch of words and maybe write down your own uh, in the outline as we finish out or as we read this passage here. But the main idea and the main word here is submission. So in verse number seven, he tells us to submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The two words that we see here, submit and resist, those are actually military words. So because they're military words, what uh, we learn from that is that they are urgent and they are imperatives, meaning you need to take care of this right away. He says, submit to God and resist the devil and some good things are going to come uh, into your life. He's, you need to do exactly what God wants you to do. Now, what I see out of this passage is two also difficult things, don't you? <laughs> submit and resist. We're like, oh yeah, no problem. I will submit to God. Okay, but wait a minute. We just heard about how fleshly and inwardly focused we are, right? Okay, so what does submission look like? Submission to God means to put yourself under God means to put yourself under his care. Oh, no, I, you know what? I can, I can handle things on my own. No, no, it's to put yourself under his care, to put yourself under his wisdom, under his power, and under his strength. It means to yield to God everything about your life, everything about your life. Your weaknesses, those are easier to yield, aren't they? And your strengths, giving all of those to God. And then the next word that he says here, resist, means to take a stand. It means to actually push back against Satan. And then it says there, he will flee from you. But I want you to notice those two things go together, all right? There's not a single one of you in your own strength who can resist the devil. Did you realize that? Now, we like to think so, right? You know, you've maybe heard a preacher in the past be like, I'll punch the devil in the face, right? You know, all right. <laughs> and then he'll like sort of do those like, woo, more things. You'll miss them. You won't ever be able to get them, right? I've heard people say, you know, I'll fight the devil and they'll drag and uh, there's like something if their teeth fall out, they'll gnaw on them or numb them to death. Have you ever heard that before? I've heard it. It's kind of weird. Yeah, it didn't make any sense. <laughs> Good. I'm glad you haven't heard that. You can tell you're in Vancouver. You haven't heard all these strange things that I heard when I was in the U.S., right? Okay. <laughs> I'm just saying that because we have some Americans here today. I'm just picking on you. I'm just picking on you. <laughs> but the critical aspect is that submission and resist go together. You cannot resist the devil on your own. You have to remember, for all of humanity, he has been studying us. Satan in his fallen state is so powerful that the angels could not even speak out against him because he's so powerful in his fallen state. And that's in uh, Jude, chapter, uh, Jude verse number nine. See, Satan is just so powerful and nothing that we could do could ever fight against him. I was reading a biography this week, or uh, last week. Um, I read a biography on a, on a baseball player and uh, 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 his name is Josh Hamilton. He played for uh, the Texas Rangers for a few years, but he was the number one draft pick overall in, uh, I think it was the 99 draft, something like that. He signed the highest signing bonus ever uh, of a baseball player right out of college. They expected him to be Mickey Mantle. They compared him to him. And if some of you, that means absolutely nothing to you, and that's totally okay. Uh, but he was really good, all right? And he was a really good, I mean, had a very high ceiling. Well, in the middle of, uh, of his first couple of years, um, he... he basically grew or got some friends around him. He was lonely. He's really a homebody kind of a guy. He got some friends around him. And, and one night, sure enough, for the first time in his life, uh, he went to a bar and he drank. First time he ever drank in his life. And that same night, he did his first line of cocaine all in one night, if you can imagine. Never in his entire life involved in that at all. 
And, uh, and some people are just more prone to addictions, and I understand all of that. But from that moment, he was hooked. Of course, he hid it for a long time. His signing bonus was almost $4 million. So he had the money to spend, the money to pay people to access his drugs for him and, and all of that. But eventually, it turned into such an issue uh, where he was out of the league. He wasn't playing baseball at all. His wife had left him. Uh, he, 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 the the, the uh, day that his second daughter was born, he left for a week on a just complete drug binge and never even saw her that first week. The day that they came home from the hospital, he was gone for a full week. And just, I mean, just a really, really terrible situation. Uh, he ended up moving on to harder drugs, eventually became a crack addict, complete. I mean, just his life was a total disaster. And then, uh, through several different circumstances, uh, he was introduced to a Christian, someone who began to speak to him. And, uh, and what he talked about was this verse here in James chapter 4, verse number 7, how that verse God used to change his life, to show him that he could resist the devil, that he, through the power of God, could overcome it. And it's a miracle story. He eventually came back. He never played a day in the major leagues. He only played minor league baseball. He had his drug addiction for four or five years. Six years later, his first season that he was healthy enough, he was starting uh, in the big leagues. And he eventually won uh, the ML uh, MVP in 2010 and, uh, and, and, and all of that. But then he had a relapse. And then he had more issues. And then he came back. And his wife and him got together. And then he had more issues. And one of the things that I was thinking about is, as I read this verse today and I was reflecting on that, on that biography that I read of his life, and, and it was written several years ago, so it ended on a high, you know? Not like, okay, not a drug joke, you guys get it, okay? It ended, it ended on a good place. It ended where, you know, things were going right. He was getting his life back together. But one of the things that struck me in all of that is that he kept just quoting, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you resist the devil. And he said it was my mantra and I would say it over. And when I have these cravings, resist the devil. But I never heard him say, submit yourselves to God. I never heard that. In that whole book, I don't know how many times it said, resist the devil. He would like, you put it throughout the book, resist the devil, resist the devil. And then knowing the story of his life now, and his wife has since left him again. And she's on a reality show right now with a really young guy. It's kind of a weird story. He never submitted to God is what I really believe. Because for all of us, there is, a, there is a time that we can resist the devil on our own, seemingly. And it seems like maybe we have the strength, but without submission to God. Because when you submit to God, no longer is the devil fighting you, he's fighting God. Because he steps in your place then. And those two things have to go together. They have to go together. And James is saying here, if you're going to get out of this selfish mindset, if you're going to get back to uh, uh, overcoming sin rather than being buried under sin, you've got to be willing to resist or submit and resist. And then he continues. Secondly, he wants us here. He says you need to draw close to God and repent. So submit to God's authority in your life. You need to uh, then fight and resist the devil. And by the way, resisting the devil does have some application in each of our lives. We need to be aware of where we're tempted, be aware of where we're prone to sin. And we need to set up guidelines and barriers and, and do what we can to help us avoid places, avoid people if necessary, to, to do the right thing. But if you don't have God on your side, it's, it's only going to last for a while. But now James says this. He says, I want you to draw close to, uh, close to God and also repent. Look at verse number eight. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. I really think it's one of the greatest privileges in all the world to be able to approach and draw near to the almighty, sovereign creator of our universe. It's one of the greatest privileges. 
And yet we often treat it so lightly, though. James here says, if you will draw close, if you will get close to God, God's going to get closer to you as well. And I love that thought. What a privilege it is to go to God anytime, any place. See, the door to God's presence is never closed. But notice what he encourages us with here. We need to head in his direction. <laughs> we need to draw towards God. And as we go towards him, he then will come close to us. Again, it's a very strong imperative. He says, go close to him. Get as close to God as you possibly can. Get close to your hope. Now, how do we do that? I think for most of you, if you've been saved and you've been through discipleship uh, at all, you could probably tell me what the two ways are that we get close to God. They are what? <laughs> oh, now I look bad. Prayer? Prayer? All right, good. Out of order than what I would have chosen, but I'm just <laughs> And what? The, the Bible, right? The Bible. Right. Okay, good. 100% for all of you. Take that home with you and feel good about it. Right. Prayer and scripture. That's how we get close to God. And we say it all the time, and I know you've heard me say it multiple times in church, but listen, you got to have a devotional life. You have to spend time in prayer with God. You have to read your Bible. When those temptations come, you need to get to the word of God. If you don't have your Bible at, with you at work, where you can just flip it open in front of everybody, you need to go to those memory verses that you've locked away. Those, there's so many verses in my life that God just brings to my mind. I love it. <laughs> when, I, when I'm in temptation, when I'm in a struggle, and he'll just encourage me. He'll just encourage me with those words. And we need to have the word of God in our heart. We need to pray. We need to go uh, to God for strength. And when we focus on him, when we make him the, the main aspect of our life, an amazing thing happens. The amazing thing that happens is that he will come close. He'll embrace you. He'll encourage you. He'll strengthen you. He'll deliver you. In Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, it tells us, Fear thou, uh, thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. I love that verse. That's a great one to memorize. Write it down. <laughs> Fear thou not. He says, I'm going to be there. I'm going to uphold you. And James is saying to us, get close to God. Get as close as you can. And then he encourages us in the second part of the verse. He says, get close. Get as close as you can to God. But then he gives us to me, it's an aspect of getting close to God. And he says, cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. You're like, oh, here's old James again, right? <laughs> he was so encouraging. Oh, here he is again. Come on, you double-minded, right? Clean up your act a little bit is what he's saying. James is saying, you can get close to God, but a barrier to getting close to God is often the sins of our hand and the sins of our heart. That's what he's talking about, our actions and our thoughts. It's an interesting thing. The closer that you get to God, the more God will illuminate to you the areas of your life that need some adjustment, right? I don't know how many times in a moment of prayer, in a moment of prayer, God has convicted my heart about something. How many times I've been reading the word of God in that one verse that always jumps out and slaps you in the face in your scripture and you're like, okay, I need to pay attention to this. God is trying to get in touch with you. He's trying to get a hold of you. And as we get close to God, he's going to reveal some things that need to be cleansed. And he says you need to cleanse your hands. That is dealing with your actions and then purify your hearts. That's the seat of your emotions, of who you are, the inside. To get back to a place of purity of thoughts and purity of motives. Man, church, there's, there's no reason for you to live life with open sin in your life. You realize that? There's no reason for you to continue to hold on to uh, that root of bitterness, that unforgiveness that you're holding on to. There's no reason for you to hold on to uh, that sin of pornography and of lust and those things that, that often just eat you up from the inside. James and God is saying to us, if you want to get close to me, you've got to cleanse some things from your life. 
You need to get right with the Lord. It's, it's such a difficult thing to go through life trying to serve God, but not willing to confess and repent to God. It's a hard thing. Because on the outward, and, and, and then what happens is it becomes about the outward, doesn't it? And outwardly you're conforming, but inwardly you're rebellious towards God. Outwardly you come to church, and outwardly everything seems fine, and outwardly you're serving, and you're handing out things, and you're talking to people, but inwardly you're still holding on to that. He says, no, 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 that's, that's not how you get close to me. Getting close to me is getting rid of some things getting right with me and then there's going to be that close fellowship with God and that strength that's available to us and that grace that pours out upon us but we've got to get it right with God and here's the great thing if you come to God and confess your sin he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness boom done right mic drop that's all you need that's what he's saying if you just come to me and just come to me and confess say God I'm a sinner God I'm struggling with this God I need help today with this and he'll come close to you and say okay I forgive you and let's move forward don't live your life in the cycle, right? I, we've talked about this before. Too many Christians live their first year of the Christian life as a cycle for 20 plus years. They grow, they grow for that whole first year, and then it's like they fall away, and then they come back and they do that same. It's just cycles of years. For some, it's a five-year cycle, whatever, and you just keep repeating that in your Christian life. Let's get over the, let's get over the hump, right? Let's continue to grow. Let's continue to develop, and it begins with drawing close to God and repenting. And then thirdly, he encourages us here in verse number nine, recognize the seriousness of sin. Recognize the seriousness of sin. Verse number nine, he says, be afflicted and mourn. You say, whoa, here we go again. <laughs> be afflicted and mourn uh, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. That's kind of a discouraging verse, right? Let your, be afflicted and mourn. What, what is he talking about? Weep. James is not calling on us to be joyless and miserable Christians. Now, some people believe that's what we're supposed to be, right? Not here at City Baptist, which is great. I'm glad. <laughs> I've been in some churches where there's some just joyless and miserable people, and they think that's how it should be. But it's not. What he's telling us is that your sin is nothing to be laughed about. There's to be a level of, of seriousness in the Christian's life about sin and its effects. Too often we're flippant with the results of sin, aren't we? Unfortunately, I've heard, I've heard uh, messages online and, and famous, well-known preachers even today be sort of flippant and just sort of offhanded with sin or things that lead to sin. We need to be very careful of that. He says sin should bring mourning to us. It should bring weeping to us. Have you ever cried over your sin before? Have you ever cried before God in brokenness? That's really the, the overriding theme here is brokenness brokenness to the damage and the difficulty that comes because of our sin one of uh, a commentator said it this way he said when james appeals to a world infected christian when he when he appeals to them to change their laughter to mourning and their joy to gloom he's not rejecting christian joy but he's so, uh, showing them the way to its true enjoyment he's saying the 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 way to connect to true joy is to have a seriousness for the things that give that break god's heart James wants us to be happy Christians, but he also wants us to understand that any joy that coexists with a worldly spirit and practice and includes the assurance of being right with God is a dangerous mirage. I thought that was so great. It's not possible to have true joy while at the same time have a worldly spirit and, and sin that's active in our lives. Another, one, uh, another commentator said this. He said, while gloom is not a Christian characteristic, mourning over our sin is. Having some mourning. You ever mourned for the loss of someone before? 
It's difficult. It stays with you, right? He's saying we should mourn over our sin and the damage that it brings, the death that it brings to not only our life, but the lives of others as well. You say, why should we do that? Well, sin, of course, defies God, doesn't it? Defies a holy God, a righteous God who's called us and saved us by his power, given us his spirit to walk in newness of life. And so when we sin against God, it's defying his holiness. It's defying his work in our lives as well. Sin in the life of a Christian definitely hinders the work of God. How many people in your life, I can name names in my life of people that I had a terrible Christian testimony with and because of my testimony, they would not even hear the gospel because of the way that I acted towards them. As well, it, uh, sin deprives us of true joy. And we must mourn over our sins because it robs us. De- the devil, of course, we know is a liar. He's a destroyer. And he brings misery, not happiness to us. And so James says here, you need to recognize the seriousness of our sin. You say, man, this is kind of a, kind of a downer. <laughs> it is a bit of a downer, but man, it puts you in a very good position, <laughs> doesn't it? Puts you in a very good position. Because James here is uh, bringing to us some imperatives for leaving behind that destructive life that we read about in verses one through five. All that sorrow, all that war, all that internal conflict, all of those damaged relationships, that's all gonna be gone as we submit to God, as we come close to him in repentance, and as we recognize and live a life of recognizing the seriousness of sin. By the way, uh, moment, uh, uh, submitting to God's authority, uh, drawing close to God and repenting, those are uh, things that happen in a moment and continually in your life, they'll be happening in a moment. But recognizing the seriousness of sin is something that just needs to continually go with you everywhere you go. Man, it's so difficult today, isn't it? It's so difficult today. Everything Everything we watch, you just go out in public, anywhere that you go, there's sin all around us, and we become desensitized to it, don't we? But sin in our lives, and honestly in the lives of others, should sadden us, should bring about a seriousness. And so James here is giving us the answer this morning to get back in line with God's expectation for his children. Remember, the word of God is filled with God's expectations, but then there's this harsh reality that James talks about this difficulty, these struggles, this selfishness, these problems. We become adulterers and adulteresses. And then James says, okay, let's get back in line. It's like Nisley talked about, get back on the path. Get back on the path. Now he hiked the West Coast Trail and that's a difficult, difficult thing. And you need to stay on the path. (laughs) Otherwise you're gonna be in serious problems. Last year when I climbed to Wedgemont uh, Lake up there by Whistler, uh, if you get off the trail at all, you're dead. (laughs) Like you gotta stay on it. And even then it's pretty dangerous, but you gotta stay on it. And it's the same thing. There is danger all around the Christian life. James says, okay, let's get back to where we need to be. Let's get back following God's expectations of us. And then there's that abundant of gra- abundance of grace that just pours out in your life. And man, I need God's grace today. I need God's grace every single day. You know, sometimes we wonder why we're not seeing true spiritual awakening, why we're not seeing revival in our churches. As I mentioned before, I was talking to that guy. He just kept going on and on about how terrible things were. And uh, I'm thankful it's not terrible here at City. God's doing work here, and I'm thankful for that. And I love telling stories, and I love telling about people getting saved and things that have been happening here. But I feel one of the main reasons we aren't seeing crazy revival or these awakenings like we've seen in in history past is is maybe maybe because Christians are just not willing to get right with God. It always starts with you, right? Revival starts with you. James here has given us the path. We hope today's message was an encouragement in your relationship with Christ. To stay connected with us, 
You can like us on Facebook or give us a follow on Instagram at Van City Baptist. Our prayer is that God will uniquely bless and grow you as